Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So let's dive into battling fear week four. As parents, uh, our responsibility is to teach our children what to fear and what not to fear. Right? There's some things we need to teach them to fear. A healthy fear of certain things is a good thing. You want to teach your kids to fear playing in the street. They'll get run over if they play in the street. A healthy fear of, hey, don't stick that fork in that outlet, that's a good, healthy fear. So that's what we do. We teach them to fear the right things. In fact, all of us can think of healthy fears that we have learned as, as, you know, as adults. We can look back and see where our parents taught us how to do. Whew, I can't do this. That, that thing's got to go. That thing's got to go. Woo. Um, some of you are here today, and you've got an unhealthy fear of something that, that has um, been taught to you by somebody. You know, some of us men were taught that we should never cry. We should be afraid to cry. Um, I'm going to try and navigate something later in my sermon, and it's going to really, really challenge that for me. Um, ladies are oftentimes taught by their moms, never trust a man. You know, your mom's final message to you was never trust a man. And so that went right to your heart, and maybe you're dealing with that this morning. But our parents are not the only people who've taught us to fear. Life teaches us to fear. We all have these life experiences. We could all stand up and tell our story about something that happened in the past, and it was so bad, and we don't ever want to experience that ever again. There were feelings associated with an event or extended period of time in the past, and you think, I don't ever, ever want to feel that fear again. I don't ever want to be made to feel that way. I don't, want to, I don't want to experience that anymore. I want to keep that from happening again. And we learn very quickly that it is that our present day fears are fueled by past experiences. That fear isn't just about today, but fear is about yesterday. And there are experiences and relationships that we bump into day to day that trigger memories from the past. And we react not only to the present, but we react to the past. And in that way, we are no longer free to experience life as it comes, but we are reacting and responding to the past. I've made no secret of the fact that when I was younger, a a, a little boy, I was not a very big fella at all. Um, in the ninth grade, I've told you this before, but when you're me and you've been so traumatized, you just never forget it and you want everybody to know. I was 4'11 and a half. When you're 4'11 in the, in the ninth grade, that extra half inch, believe me, is really important. I was 4'11 and a half, trying desperately to get to five feet tall, and I weighed 88 pounds as a freshman. I, I know that because I wrestled in the 88-pound class and gym class, and I made weight. So... Um, that was me. Consequently, when you're as small as I was, you are constantly picked on and being made fun of. I, uh, it happened in our neighborhood. It happened at school. It even happened in our youth group to some extent. We had a football player in our, in our youth group, and he was a kind of a macho man, and he was like twice as big as me, and you know, he thought it was great to like bench press me in front of the girls. Um, I didn't think it was all that great as I went up and down. But he thought it was wonderful, and so, you know, you laugh, and ha-ha, that's fun, but it really wasn't. Um, When I was in elementary school, fourth grade, I lived right around the corner from my elementary school. was within walking distance easily. And um, I can still remember in the fourth grade when the bell would ring and I would be dismissed from class, 
I would get, of course, you weren't allowed to run in the halls, but I would get to the door, and as soon as I got to the front door of our elementary school, I would hit a dead sprint until I got to our yard. You say, now, Brett, why would you do that? Petey Schaefer. <laughs> Petey Schaefer was in the fifth grade. He had been afflicted by polio, so he had braces on his legs, he had really long hair, and a mean scowl on his face, and for whatever reason, Petey had decided he didn't like me. He was in the fifth grade, I think he'd failed a couple of grades, he was really big, he was really scary and imposing, and I didn't want anything to do with him, and for whatever reason, Petey thought it was a lot of fun to scare me to death. So every day when I got out of school, I would sprint home, and I can remember the feeling of relief that would come over me as I would hop the curb into my grass thinking, okay, I'm finally home safe. And, and I was, you know, all I knew was that if I didn't run fast, Petey was going to get me. And I knew with that leg like it was, he was going to have a little trouble. I might have been small, but I was a pretty quick little guy. And so I would, I would make my way home in a hurry. And I was terrified of Petey. And as I have grown up my entire life, I have not ever wanted to be a part of conflict. I don't enjoy conflict. I don't like to see people in conflict. You know, the 2020 shows where they catch the, the predators in the kitchen and they confront them and all that. I mean, I know that's necessary and I know they're bad people and I know they probably ought to go to jail. I don't like any of that stuff, okay? I don't like to see people squirm. I don't like to see people made to feel uncomfortable. I don't like any of that. I just, I want everybody to get along and it just bothers me when they don't. Now, that's my sad story, and I know that everybody's got one. You loved, and you were spurned, and you're not going to love anymore. You trusted, and the person you trusted was not trustworthy, and you, trustworthy, and you decided, I can't trust anymore. You took a risk, and you were vulnerable financially, maybe professionally, and it didn't work out, and God didn't come through, and it's the last risk you're ever going to take, and that's the last time you're ever going to be vulnerable in front of anybody. You really tried to open yourself up one time to be intimate, and, int- and it was not something that worked out well for you, and so now you say, I'm never going to be made to feel that way again. I don't care how much they love me. I don't care what they require of me. I will never feel like that again. You let your life out of control. You got hurt, and you decided, I will stay in control, and no one else is ever going to have that kind of control over me again. And some of the fears that you deal with now as an adult hinge on an event or a period in your life. And you were taught to fear, and so what we do is we begin to build walls. And we develop a safety zone to hide behind. So And that safety zone can take on a lot of different forms. It can take on the form of anger, and you're just angry at everybody. And people go, why is he so mad? It's a wall. And it keeps people at a distance so that they can't get to you and you can't be hurt. You might withdraw and people say, why don't you get more relationally involved? Why don't you open up more? Why don't you become more intimate? And and through withdrawal, we protect ourselves. We decided that since we couldn't trust once, we'll never trust again, and so we're known as that person. Oh, they just don't get close to people. What's wrong with them? Oh, they just, they just don't, they're not very open. They just don't get close to people. Some of us hide behind criticism. You just learn to be critical and cynical, and someone says to you, why are you so critical and cynical all the time? And you don't know, but you do know that it's a defense mechanism of some sort to keep you from feeling something that you don't want to feel because you felt it so deeply in the past. Here's one. Life was out of control and 
At one point, I'm going to, I'm going to, and, and so I'm going to stay in control from this point on. And no matter what happens, I will not allow my life to spin out of control like that relationally, financially, structurally. I'm going to be the one that's in control. And along with criticism, someone, one that's very closely associated with that is sarcasm. Everything you say is snarky. Everything you say is critical. Everything you say has got sarcasm built into it because it's a way to keep everybody at arm's length and you just it's a wall you keep up so that you don't have to be intimate with people. We could go on and on. There's our profession. There's the way we communicate. There's the way we discipline or don't discipline our kids. The list goes on and on. We build up walls to keep people from getting close and to keep us from getting hurt. And then if the pain is too deep, there's this, substance abuse. If you ever talk to somebody who is coming off an addiction or abuse, you, you pretty much find in the, underneath all of that is that there's a pain that they don't want to feel. There's some pain and it's, it's, it's too hard and so the, the way they deal with it is with some substance or something that they use to put in their body and they would rather hide behind the drugs than to feel that thing, whatever it is. And it's not so much that drugs are the problem, although they are the problem, but it's what's behind that, and they don't want anybody to get close. And we live our lives behind walls, trying to be good husbands and good wives and good employees and good employers. And all we can say is, as long as you deal with me like this, with my sarcasm or with my uh, anger or with my substance abuse or my, my drug problem or my drinking thing or whatever it is, as long as you take the package deal, I'm good. But if you ask me to leave this behind, I'm going to stay right behind this wall. I do not come from behind the wall. And I walked out there once and God didn't come through for me. God didn't protect me. And the people he put in charge of me, not only did they not protect me, they were part of the problem. So if you're going to relate to me, it's a package deal. This is who I am and this is what I am. Then you become a Christian and from outside of your protective walls, you hear the voice of God saying, follow me. Follow me. And then we hear him say, love one another. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands and wives, submit to one another. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And from behind our walls, we say, can I do it from back here? Can I do it in a safe place? I'm afraid to follow out from behind this wall because I went out there once and it didn't turn out good for me. God, I'm not sure I can trust you out there because I was vulnerable once and it didn't work out. You let me down, or it felt like you let me down. So God, this is me. It's a a package deal and I come to you but I come with all this baggage and that's the only way you're ever going to get me and as we're going to see this morning in scripture as many of us know from personal experience God is never really satisfied with that and the prayer this morning is that some of you hear this call and you hear him say come out come out wherever you are and trust me and follow me and don't live the rest of your life behind some wall where nobody can get to know you. And don't let an experience, even an experience that had to do with God, cause you to live your life behind walls that rob you of relationship and intimacy and rob you of an adventure of knowing what God would do in you and through you and with you if only you would come out of hiding and be vulnerable once again. So here's the question. 
How do you do that? How do you quit hiding? How do you break through the walls? How do we detach from our negative experiences of the past and get to a place where we live without fear? Today, we're going to look at someone who is very familiar to most of us. We're going to take a look at Moses. I want you to turn to Exodus in your Bibles. The first part of Exodus will be in 1 through 4. We'll skim through a lot of that very quickly. You know the story, you've seen it in the movies, but the movie doesn't necessarily show you the fear that Moses lived with a lot of his life. Um, one of my great childhood memories is my mom would take us to church on a Sunday night. Usually dad was on the road driving a truck, and so uh, mom always took us to church. She would go listen to L.D. Campbell preach, and the kids would, we would, I had four, three siblings, and we would all go to youth group, and, and um, when it was over, we would come home, mom would get us in our pajamas pretty quick and get us to bed. But there were two year, weeks out of the year that were pretty special. One was Wizard of Oz night. Loved Wizard of Oz night. Except the monkeys. I don't like the monkeys. <laughs> they scare me. And then, and then the second week of the, of the year that was really great was the night they would show the Ten Commandments on television, right? Charlton Heston and Yule Brenner and and uh, it was a real treat for us because we knew it was coming and we would look forward to it. And we knew that mom was going to pull on the way home. She was going to pull into the convenience store and she was going to buy a, they didn't have two liters back then in the day. They had, we had to buy the carton of glass bottle Cokes, you know, and she'd get some popcorn and we'd wait anxiously in the car while she went in the store and came out and we'd get home and we'd get in our pajamas and she'd make popcorn and, and get the Cokes ready, and we would come downstairs and turn on the television and watch the Ten Commandments, and it was long, and I loved it that it was long because it meant we got to stay up longer, and I loved the story of the Ten Commandments. It was one of my favorite nights of the year. The Bible tells us that Moses was one of the most fearful people in the whole Bible. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find another character that demonstrated the fear that Moses demonstrates. And it was through his fear that God prepared him and ultimately used him to change history. Let me give you a little context before you start, before we start this morning. The reason this is such a great story is, is that for those of us who deal with fears from our past, it, the entire life of Moses was, was, a, you know, was set within the context of fear. Moses grew up in a time when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. Every day of their life was a day of fear. They never knew at any point in their day a taskmaster could get mad and, and take the life of someone that they knew, their mother, their father, a brother, or a sister, and there would be no recourse for you as a slave. If they just decided they had a bad day, they didn't like you and wanted to kill you, they could do that. It was no issue for them. So there was a fear that was associated with being in Egypt as a slave. Not only that, Pharaoh, who was in charge of this system, was afraid as well. He was afraid that soon there would be more Hebrews than Egyptians. And so he called the Hebrew midwives together, the ladies that helped the Hebrew women have their children, and he said to them, if a Hebrew boy is born, I want you to kill it. Don't allow the Hebrew boys to live. And here in the midst of this incredible context of fear, everybody is fearful. The Hebrews are afraid. Pharaoh is afraid. In the midst of all this, some heroes arise, the midwives, the women who were called in to help the Hebrew women give birth to the children. And I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth, 
on the delivery stool. I don't know what a delivery stool is. I've never seen one of those. Anybody ever deliver off of a delivery stool? That doesn't sound like fun to me. Just a side note. If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it's a girl, let her live. I have verse 17 highlighted. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, what have you done? Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, listen to this. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> what a great, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now here's what I think you'll find interesting about this. The Hebrew midwives feared God, but they feared a God that hadn't done anything for them in 400 years. God for 400 years had basically ignored their prayers and they had lived in this context of fear. And we find these women saying, God, we would rather obey you than Pharaoh and we would rather obey you even though you haven't really answered any of our prayers for the last 400 years. And because of their fear of God, Moses was born and survived. Well, let's get into the story. It starts in the last verse of chapter 1. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order, since the midwives wouldn't cooperate, to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born to you, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So the boys are going to get thrown into the Nile where they will either drown or they will be eaten by crocodiles. Now go over to Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man of a tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, so this little baby in this basket has a sister who's stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, so this little baby sister's been watching all this off in the distance, She's going to spring into action. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. She basically goes to her own mother, and she says, Mom, they found the baby, and she's told me to come find someone to come nurse the baby, so I'm coming to get you. So here's little baby Moses. He doesn't even have a name yet. He's in the basket. The, little sister, the older sister is watching off in the distance. Pharaoh's daughter finds the basket. She, she runs up and she says, hey, I see that you found this little baby. You're going to need somebody to help you take care of that. You want me to go get one of the Hebrew women to maybe nurse this baby for you? And the, the daughter of Pharaoh says, yeah, that's a great idea. Go get one for me. And so the sister goes and gets her mother, who's also the baby's mother, and she's going to nurse the baby. Verse 8, yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me. And then I love this next line, and I will pay you. So now, not only does little Moses' mom get to raise her son, but she's going to get paid to do it. 
So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Can you imagine how hard that was for that woman? She, Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now let's stop for a minute and talk. If ever there was a guy who should have had confidence in God and that God was with him, it should have been Moses. I mean, we read that story and we think, Moses, you're golden. God is obviously interested in you. You don't need to fear anything. First of all, because of these Hebrew women, you were able to be born, then your mom is creative enough to put you in a basket, coat it with tar and pitch, and put you in the water so the thing would float. I mean, I can tell you right now, if if that had been me and I'd done that, crocodiles are getting to Moses. I mean, because he's not going to make it if that had been me. I mean, God obviously is working through this whole thing. And then God providentially intervened and protected you from the crocodiles. And then this Pharaoh's daughter finds you and pays your mom to raise you? Are you kidding me? You certainly, Moses, you have certainly found favor in God's eyes. And then instead of growing up as a slave, you grow up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. And you grow up in the palace. If ever there was a guy who, who should have been able to walk into any context fearlessly, it should have been Moses. After all, God is clearly all over you. His fingerprints are all over your childhood and your life. But Moses missed it, and Moses becomes one of the most fearful men in the Bible. Why? Because he's like us. Because his current circumstances overpowered his ability to see God in his past. I'm going to say something to you, and you won't believe me now, but I'll just say it, and it can maybe incubate while we talk this morning. Whenever you hear people say something like, if God, you know, if God loves me, then why this? And if God this, then why that? And the reason I'm afraid, because this and that, because of this terrible thing that's been done to me, eventually, if they keep talking long enough, they begin to see the thumbprint of God on their life. But sometimes it takes a long, long time, not because God's not there, but because of current circumstances and the fear associated with, with the circumstances, and it so overpowers them, it blinds them to the fact that God's been there, they just haven't been able to see him. And we look at the story of Moses, and we see God all over the story of Moses. But when Moses becomes an adult, as we're going to see, he's scared to death. He has no confidence that God is going to be with him. And we want to interrupt the story and say, Moses, buddy, wake up, live with confidence. I mean, God's clearly on your, in your corner. God has intervened on your behalf. He, he has something for you. You need not be afraid. But Moses couldn't see it. You can't see it a lot of times. I don't see it a lot of times in my life. But it's not because God's absent, it's because of our fear. And it's an inaccurate interpretation that we have of events. And we're blinded to his presence and activity in our past. The story goes on. Moses grows up. We don't know a whole lot about the the upbringing of Moses. We don't know much about him as a kid, other than he's fairly privileged. He's going to grow up in a palace and he's going to be educated as an Egyptian. So he's got that going for him. Exodus chapter 2 verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, which is one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now here's the picture. Here's the great Moses, this great and powerful Moses for whom God has so much in store, and he's running from Pharaoh, and he's going to run to Midian, and you can read this for yourself. You know what he does in Midian? In Midian, he pretty, pretty much does what we would do. He built himself a little life. He hid behind his fear, behind his new finances and his new life and his new wife and his new occupation, and he put thoughts of Egypt and the people of Egypt far in the rearview mirror, and he made a decision, I'm never going back there. They can rot in slavery for all I care. I'm not going back. And he did what we are so good at doing. He made himself this little wrinkle-free life with his new life and his new job and his new future, and he was going to inherit a lot of money from his new father-in-law because he was now the favored son-in-law, and his wife's dad really loved him, and everything was great, and everything was under control. And then one day, God interrupted Moses like God wants to interrupt some of you and like God has interrupted me many times in my life. And in a sense, God said, Moses, come out from behind your wall. Come out for me. Moses, I know life is under control. I know it couldn't be better for you, but that is not what I have for you. And like us, Moses hid behind his little walls. As we will see. And he said, I went there once. I didn't like how it turned out. It was uncomfortable. I don't like what happens. I don't like the way it feels. And God continued to say, Moses, I have something for you, and you'll never experience it in Midian. You'll never experience it in the life that you have carved out for yourself in Midian, and you'll never experience it as long as you hide behind your fear and as long as you use your past experience as an excuse for not following me. Now, that describes a lot of us in the room. The story goes on. Turn to chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land that into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you, Moses, 
to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I mean, God, I've been there and done that. I've tried that. It didn't, it didn't work. I didn't like the experience. I didn't like the way it made me feel. I'm staying right here in Midian. I like my life here. Granted, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's a lot better than what I might experience if I try to get out from behind this wall and go back to Egypt. Let's, uh, I just want to skim through a couple of things. We're going to pick up at verse 13 of chapter 3. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I say to them? So see, Moses is going to start throwing up all these excuses and questions, and he's going to try and make this all confusing. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it, which I kind of get. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Excuses, excuses, excuses. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. We read that in verse 13. Please send someone else, not me. God, I can't do it. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to try that again. I'm afraid. You know what happened? Moses came to a point of crisis like some of us need to come to, where he finally threw up his arms and he said, okay, I'll go. I'm scared. I can't imagine that this is going to turn out in any way that's going to be good. Um, I don't, I'm going to wish I'd stayed right here in Midian. I know I am. And, and I'm going to wish I'd settled for safe and easy behind this wall. But, are you ready? Here's the key. Because you are God and I am not, I'll follow. And as Moses stepped out from behind his walls, and as he trusted God, an interesting th- thing happened to him, and it happens to us. Suddenly you read this story, and over time, as, you, as he experienced this story, all those times and events in the past that had made no sense before, he seemed to, they, they, they seemed to just have no significance whatsoever. All those past events that just seemed to spell out failure, all those events that he misunderstood, the fact that Moses was, you know, he, and he thought, man, I'm not cut out for this job. I mean, this is, this is I'm, not, I'm not good at this. All those past events that had been a barrier and had caused so much fear began to change in significance and change in definition. And now we can read the story as Moses begins to understand his own story and he begins to understand that the thumbprint of God is all over his childhood and all over his life. That it wasn't just Moses out there on his own failing and trying and failing, but God was behind all that and was trying to bring Moses to a point of brokenness and dependency and to a point where he didn't trust in himself any longer. He trusted in God. It's a hard place to get to. And God knew that once he'd broken him down and brought him to a point of dependency, it was time to call him out and to give him another opportunity. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to say because I think it's possible that somebody came this morning just to hear what I'm about to say. Are you ready? Here it is. 
When you respond to the call of God on your life, then you will begin to recognize the work in, that God's work in your past. When you respond to the call of God on your life, that is when you begin to recognize God's work in your past, where maybe you didn't see it before. As long as we hide, and as long as we say, I'll come as soon as God shows himself. I'll come as soon as God explains why it happened the way it happened. You're never going to get anywhere that way, and you'll never respond, because God probably isn't going to let you see it that way. But the moment you step out and say, okay, God, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to trust again. I'm going to love again. I'm going to submit again. I'm going to follow again. I'll risk again. I'm willing to follow you. In the ensuing days, you will look back and you will understand like never before what it was that God was doing in your past. You'll see it. Why God brought you through. What he brought you through. And why he allowed you to experience what you can't even imagine a loving God would allow you to experience. Not until you're willing to respond to God's call now will you be able to recognize his hand in the past. I hear this after people have given their life to Christ a lot of times. They'll say, Brett, you know something? I can look back now and I can see where things were going on that at the time it didn't make any sense to me. I was confused. It, it didn't work out. I met these people. It didn't work out. Before it was just a blur and it didn't make any sense. But now that I'm, I'm, I've given my life to Christ, now I'm seeing this differently and I'm starting to see where you know, where I didn't want to trust God, but now that I have, it's starting to come clear. And it makes sense. And, and, and the pieces fit together. Not, not necessarily the significance, but I can see where God was all over it. But it wasn't until I stepped out and responded to the voice of God that it began to make any sense at all. And you say, Brett, are you saying that God causes all those bad things to happen in people's lives? I, I don't know about that. I can't answer that. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I know. From the Old Testament and from the New Testament and from a whole lot of stories and from a whole lot of experience, I can tell you that in God's sovereignty and his power and his love and mercy, when you and I decide to step out and say, I'm not going to hide behind my barriers any longer. I'm not going to use this wall as an excuse anymore to keep me from the things God wants me to do. And I have carefully erected this thing, and it's full of anger and you know, pain and, and sarcasm and abuse of different kinds. I'm no longer going to live my life behind a bunch of walls. But I'm going to be all God wants me to be, and I'm going to experience what God wants me to experience. In that moment and in that day and in that time, you will have a brand new understanding of your past and you will see God's fingerprints all over your life. But it's not until you're willing to follow that that becomes clear. You see, what we all need and what we experience from time to time as Christians is a burning bush experience. It's a place where you come up, there's a fork in the middle of the road and you've got to make a decision. Am I going to follow God because my fear of God is greater than anything else out there that I might encounter? Am I going to be that person, a burning bush experience where we decide, you know what, God, as scared as I am and as unpredictable as the future looks, and I don't know what's out there, and I don't know if I can handle it, and I don't know if I'm your boy for this or not. God, I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't want to move into that new relationship. I don't want to take a risk. But God, you're God, and I'm not, and I'm going to obey you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I will not be afraid of life spinning out of control because I would rather live with the knowledge 
of what God might do in and through me than to spend the rest of my life hiding behind these walls that I have erected to keep me from feeling what it is that I'm so afraid of feeling. And in those burning bush experiences, you will argue with God like we all do. But here's what it comes down to, a very simple thing. You just need to decide that God is God. You've got to ask yourself, is, is God really God? And if he is, in spite of what it looks like around me, and in spite of what I didn't think that he'd done the last time, can I trust him? Will I trust him? And when you do, you will see your past very differently than maybe you're seeing it today. I want to spend just a minute telling you about my pathway into ministry, just a, a brief glimpse into my life. Many of you know this story, but I, just, it, I think it'll be helpful this morning. I grew up in a great church with a great pastor named L.D. Campbell. He is still living. He is still preaching and doing ministry. Um, there are a few men in my life that have had the impact on me that L.D. Campbell has had. Uh, I am in large part who I am today because of him, have high, high respect for him, as do many other people. Um, I'm so blessed to have had him as a pastor in my life. I also had a youth pastor named Doug Newhouse. And um, those two guys were just so instrumental to speak truth to me. And they, they were constantly calling me into ministry, saying, Brett, you've got gifts for ministry. I was a little bit of a leader in my high school youth group. And I can remember going to retreats where, you know, the other kids would be playing softball or whatever. And Doug had talked me into being the preacher that weekend on the retreat. And so I would have to work on sermons and do sermons and um, get up at campfire and deliver these messages that I'm sure were awful, but, you know, Doug would come behind me and tell me how good it was, and you really need to think about going into ministry, and why would I want to go into ministry? You got to stand up in front of people and talk. That's crazy. Why would you do that? But that's what he kept saying. I, I, um, I decided not to go into ministry. I decided to, to, um, to leave school uh leave high school and go to the university to the northern kentucky university uh if that name sounds familiar they just got into the tournament for the first time ever they're eligible and they got in and so they're all happy but it was a school close to home that's northern kentucky university i went there for a year it did not go well they invited me not to come back (laughs) i got a letter to prove it um your academic services are no longer necessary at our institution of higher learning. So, um, yeah, it was a total failure. It was awful. It was embarrassing, humbling. So I worked at a place called Gold Circle. It was a department store. Has anybody ever shopped at a Gold Circle? No one in the first service. Anybody? One person. <laughs> yeah, one person. My wife has been to a Gold Circle. Um, <laughs> Gold Circle was like Target before there was a Target, okay? It was, they called them Gold Circle stores, and they were awesome. And I had great friends at Gold Circle. I had a good job there. Everybody, I got along with everybody. Um, but all of a sudden, I started having trouble. It was a total flame out. I failed miserably there, and uh, that, that didn't end well. And so finally, I decided I would go into ministry. I would go to Johnson Bible College. I didn't know until this point that when I decided not to go to Johnson right away, my pastor and my youth pastor had begun to pray for me. You better hope I never pray for you like this. But this was their prayer. God, Brett needs to be in ministry, and he's being stubborn and bullheaded about it, so we pray that you would just make his life miserable until he goes into the ministry. That's what they prayed for me. 
So I entered Johnson Bible College in 1982, and it was four of the greatest years of my life. I don't know that I learned a lot about ministry there because you have to be in ministry to learn about ministry. I don't think you learn it there, but you got to go to college to learn other stuff, right? You got to go to college to learn. How, you got to grow up. You got to learn how to do your laundry. You got to learn how to handle conflict. You got to learn how to get up at seven in the morning and go to Greek class. Woo! It was fun. And I preached my first sermon, what I would consider my first sermon, when I was a freshman at Johnson Bible College. I came home one weekend. LD had me preach on a Sunday night. I was petrified. I can remember one of the local, um, one of the Cincinnati uh, news anchors was in our church, and he was there that night, and it just had me wigged out. And I don't know how long I preached, maybe 12, 15 minutes. I'm sure, I'm sure God swept through that place in a mighty torrent. You know, I'm sure... I don't remember much many being saved, but surely that was the case. I'm sure lives were changed and people were touched as, as this Bible college kid tried to preach about Jesus, and it was awful. It was awful. I graduated Johnson Bible College eventually, and I uh, headed into ministry. My prayer had been I wanted to, gra- I was so afraid of ministry, I wanted to graduate Bible college, and then I wanted Jesus to come back. I just thought that would be the perfect way to go out, you know. God didn't see it that way. He gave me four and a half years at the Reddington Christian Church in Seymour, Indiana. I was their first youth pastor. That was my first church. Um, it, I, it wasn't a total failure, but I wasn't a very good youth pastor. Um, I just wasn't very good. And, and in a lot of ways, I look back on that, and I think, you know, that was just a failure. So I left that, and I got out of ministry for two years. It was horrible, more failure, just um, I just couldn't seem to do anything right. And then one day I heard God say, come on, Brett. Come on, we're going back into ministry. <laughs> no, no. No, God, I can't do that. I don't want to go back. I'm afraid. Ministry's hard. I've tried that. It, 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 I failed. It's not good. And God was saying, come on, Brett, follow me. It's time. It's time we go back into ministry. That's what I've created you for. And all that failure and all that misery was preparing me, humbling me, teaching me, molding me. And I look back now and I can see God's fingerprint all over the rest of my life. Getting me ready for a time that I would roll onto this campus and I would pull up and I would become the youth pastor and after eight and a half years... I would become the pastor. In the middle of it, it's hard to see. In the middle of it, you don't see God's hand. In the middle of it, you, there's all this stuff happening. There's all this failure. There's all this stuff. And you're like, God, what is going on? Why, why isn't this going any better? What's wrong with me? He was molding and he was changing and he was putting things in place and he was showing me people and he was showing me how much I needed him and how I can't, you can't, Brett, you can't do this your way and on your own. Now, that's my little story. You've got your own story. Here's my question. What are you afraid of? What is it that has you saying, I can never go there again? I won't go there. What are you hiding behind? Is it an abuse? Is it sarcasm? Is it anger? Are you just just gnarly with everybody? What is it that has you afraid 
Do you realize that until you step out and say, God, I'm stepping out, and as scary as it is, and as unknown as it is, and as uncharted as it is, until you step out, you are missing out on the adventure of knowing what it is that God wants to do with you, in you, and through you. I was petrified of becoming the pastor of this church. Petrified. The elders asked me if I would be willing to preach here, and my mom had always said, Brett, when are you going to preach? And I'd say, Mom, God's not calling me to preach. And her answer was always the same. When he wants you, he'll call you. When he wants you, he'll call you. Well, God, God's not calling me to preach. Well, he just hadn't found the right place for you. And then one day the elders come, and they said, Brett, we want you to preach. I was terrified. I said, you don't want me to do this. You need to find somebody else. I'll hold the fort down. You go find somebody else, and I'll just, I'll wait until you find somebody. And today, I cannot imagine my life not having pastored this church. I can't imagine. Being this, the pastor of this church has been one of the most enriching, fulfilling, joy-filled, rewarding Things I've ever known. But you can look over my life, and it is full of failure. Reason after reason after reason why you would say, I can't let him pastor a church. Are you kidding me? Don't let your past failure keep you from embracing and experiencing what God has next for you. Don't let your past failure become the excuse that you use with God where you say, God, these are all the reasons why I can't. Because it's not until you come out from behind the wall and you get vulnerable, all your past and all your failure and all your pain and all the times other people have hurt you and all the times you've hurt other people and all the stuff that didn't make any sense, those are the times. Not until you step into that moment and you say, God, I'm going to do it. I have no idea where this is going or how this is going to work out. Believe me, 17 years ago, I had no idea where this was going to go. I sure didn't see 17 years. And now I look back and I'm like, well, heck yeah. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. What is it that God wants to do with you? And you just keep offering him excuses. Well, God, here's why. Well, God, look at this. And look over here. And, And look at this. And God's like, no, 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 no. Follow me. Come on, follow me. Somebody in this room has never given their life to Christ. Because you think it's about checking boxes or you think it's about keeping a list of do's and don'ts and you think it's about being good. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with you being forgiven. It has to do with you coming and saying, God, I'm a train wreck and I need to be forgiven. I'm inviting you to take your past and give it to God and let God explain to you how he's going to use all that crap in your life. 
not until you step into what he's got for you are you going to know what all that means. Let's pray together. Father, we love you in this room this morning. We do. We've all got stuff. We look back over our life, and it is just a shambles. It's, it's a bunch of failure. It's a convoluted mess. It is tangled. It is messy. It's nasty and ugly, and we are ashamed. And yet you call us. And you say you have something for us, and we offer up our resistance and our excuses, and you call us still. And then when we step into that moment, we begin to see how we've been molded and humbled and shaped and prepared for a day for you to use us in ways we never dreamed. God, I pray that every person in this room would be able to put their excuses and their reasons down, and they would step into that moment with you. And that they'd be ready to see how your fingerprint is all over their life. Lord, we love you. We lift you up. We praise your name. Father, if there's one in this room that's never given their life to you, I pray that today would be the day that they finally quit running. And they say, I'm yours and I'm ready to be forgiven. Father, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.